0: No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end.
1: Hello, and welcome to Media and the End of the World. This is Ralph Beliveau. Adam Kroon should be rematerializing shortly. He's unfortunately had another one of those really uh, disturbing, interdimensional incidents where uh, something's (laughs) gone terribly wrong, and we'll try to figure out what it is. Not exactly sure. Um, But I have with me in the studio today, this is going to be a great conversation, I think. I have uh, Daniela Garofalo, who is a colleague of mine here at the University of Oklahoma. Hello, Daniela. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Um... And with me also here is Anna Kornbla and she has come to talk about some of her work on, and we're going to, by the end of this conversation, everyone listening will be able to tell the person sitting next to them at a, a cocktail party exactly what formalism is, <laughs> <laughs> and why it's important to think and know about, yeah. and uh, try to make sense out of it in in my usual, like, really slow media literacy terms. And uh, so we'll go from there. Great. So, so. Uh so where where are you now and what are you doing? That's a good start, isn't it?
2: Uh, Right at this minute, I'm sitting in your chair. (laughs) No, but you mean where do I teach? Yeah. So I teach at the University of Illinois at Chicago, which is a great urban campus. Uh Is the only R1 in the country with a majority Pell eligible population. So it's a really special school. I have
1: to say, my daughter almost went there. Oh, really? She did. And my wife went there. She's at Grinnell in Iowa. That's that was her. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, you know, she. I've always loved the campus. I grew up in Chicago. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, and my brother attended there for a while, mm-hmm. and my wife got her master's degree there. So, and it's 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 a really interesting campus. It is because
2: yeah. it's a f- completely brutalist uh, <laughs> and completely urban. It is really
1: hard to explain to people what it feels. It feels like you're in a concrete bunker that's pretending to be a Sunday church service. <laughs> you know, because it's got that kind of circular, everybody can talk to each other feel, which is why. Us old school people still call it circle, right? Right.
2: Well, I, <laughs> yeah, there are a bunch of reasons for that. It's true, yeah. I mean, it had, there was the idea that Walter Natch, the architect, had that if you didn't have conventional campus architecture, so no English department building where there were faculty offices and classrooms, but instead a tower of faculty offices and then pods of faculty of classrooms and pods of student services buildings and stuff, that then you would somehow have faculty collaboration and interdisciplinarity, because we We would talk to each other in the elevators. And when you go into a classroom, there might be statistics graphs on the board that I have to figure out how to recuperate to my literary analysis and Ah, formal and, yeah,
1: teaching. So, yeah, the other person that I know who teaches there is Deirdre McCloskey.
2: Oh, yeah. She was my colleague in English. I mean, she was appointed in multiple departments, but in English, Uh yeah, she has retired. Oh, she did? Oh, okay. She
1: was one of my professors as a graduate student.
2: Oh, at Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: uh, an amazing rhetorician. Yeah. Like, terrifying. Argued about a lot of stuff. (laughs) Right. But uh, she was, she's just a phenomenal influence.
0: Phenomenal. Yeah, Absolutely. did it? W- Did the architect's plan work?
2: Oh, God, no. It's
0: yeah. so totally
2: <laughs> catastrophic. First of all, there's all these structurally unnecessary prefab concrete panels that they use to show off that technology. And what they do is occlude the sunlight, which <laughs> is a hellish choice to make in a climate like Chicago.
1: <laughs> so you're visiting us here at the University of Oklahoma to do some presentations on some work you're doing. And how would you describe generally what the, what the goal of what you're doing is?
2: Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard question. I mean, partly I, the temporality is mm-hmm. the hard part because, you know, I have work that has just come out. I had two books come out in 2019. Mm-hmm. So there's that work. But then there's the it, the publication timeline is so slow that there's work I'm thinking about now. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, you know, how new is it and how does it grow out of things I wasn't able to solve or figure out mm-hmm. in the work before? Yeah. Um, so I guess I would say... The work that I was talking with uh, the g- group at the center about um, is in literary formalism, and I have a recent book that tries to think about um, the possibilities of re-understanding or reapproaching what the value of literary formalism is and what the things that it offers to us as an analytic approach, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, by connecting it to formalism and mathematics in the 19th century Uh uh, and to what I also call political formalism, a way of thinking about political relationships also. So um, it tries to say Formalism is, you know, the study of form, which is the thing that makes literature different from just ordinary life or ordinary language, right? It's the added style and composition and structure and rhythm. And um, so it tries to say that studying that, that um, figured quality or that made quality or that kind of weirdly distorted quality of literary uh, representation instead of just everyday behavior or everyday language or everyday relationships um, is that's the special thing that literary critics know how to do and that we should have um, better tools for advocating for studying forms.
1: So someone who, say, is trying to approach this might, uh, maybe one entry point would be that um, the difference between prose and poetry, for example, right? Uh-huh. So, right. like, because poetry has their, the, the formal aspects are more overt, right? Right.
2: Exactly, I think about that difference a lot because I am primarily a theorist of the novel. um, That poetry, uh, you know, has received and inherited forms like you know structures like a sonnet that has fourteen lines and the rules about the volta and things. um, And so the form seems to be apparent there. And maybe you know younger kids would think, um, younger readers might think, oh, poetry rhymes, right? Mm -hmm. So rhyme is a form that's doing work that's integral to the meaning of a poem, right? Mm -hmm. But then what's the form of prose, you know? Uh, And And so there's lots of ways to try to figure that out. Or do novels actually do different things than poems Mm -hmm. do, right? So those are questions I start to be interested
1: in. Yeah, So and we also experience now, you know, because we have uh, a population of people who do a lot of listening as well as reading. Right. Right. So that's an interesting kind of formal difference, too, because it becomes kind of a performance mode to appreciate prose. Oh, for sure, for sure.
2: The podcast culture, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, What is storytelling? Is there such a thing as rhythm within prose? You know, it doesn't rhyme necessarily, Mm -hmm. but is there a a way of having sentences that have little and parallels and that draw you in or that pop somewhere right. varying the length of your sentences stuff mm-hmm. like
1: that. however as academics we are responsible for killing all of that right we're supposed to take all the fun i'm kidding
2: <laughs> 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 no i was
1: thinking um i i haven't actually listened to it myself but apparently the audiobook of lincoln and the bardo uh-huh. has like 30 people in the cast performing it Right, and uh, the friend of mine who was listening to it said it was just a phenomenal experience to experience the book in that way because of the multiple voices that Sanders was constructing in yeah. it.
2: Yeah, and so I, I found that book really um, frustrating to read, and I think that um, the uh, I, more than one person has told me that the audio version is uh, is better. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's funny then about that performance and those multiple voices and multiple people doing the voices and the different intonations and so on is that um, it's sort of Uh, making into a bodily and sensorial quality what is actually kind of an enigma on the page because it's very confusing who's Mm -hmm. talking when you're reading that book on the page. And so the performative quality of it or the spectacularization of it and the embodiment of Mm it um, is maybe easier to access, but then maybe something might be lost.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it occurs oh. to me as we're thinking about this that, you know, there's those pages of Tristram Shandy oh, that right. are just like a black box. Right. How do you do that when you're I doing it? In
2: an audiobook. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, in my, my recent book about formalism, I have a whole chapter on Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in there is the use of blank space and the use of almost concrete poetry in the illustrations that um, Carol was obsessed with uh, and he commissioned from multiple people and then had revised and he revised things like um, the punctuation repeatedly he used these do you know when there's like a interruption in um you know say between two paragraphs but it's marked with like a star or right. a line of things that's mm-hmm. called a dinkus uh, no <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Which is a great whose word. decision was that that's
1: terrible <laughs> that's, terrible, that's like calling call it a fart right that's a that's a prose fart that's a what we call it. that's a There's technical a term a dinkus A
2: dinkus <sighs> yeah and but carol used them for very specific purposes and they actually have meaning but like how do you say dinkus in an audiobook <laughs> clearly it would make you laugh or somebody would think that's a fart or, that's a yeah, mistake yeah right
1: yeah you hit the pause and go yeah. yeah I think Carol might have been off of her a little bit yeah <laughs> so part of this part of what's interesting about this work is it's, it's it's a reaction to some things that have been going on in the theory world that were seen as as problematic in terms of the way people were developing theorizing what was happening in prose so how would you how would you describe what that whole movement was
0: well I think one of the things that formalism is reacting to Uh, is the historicism that really took over academia for many years and essentially emphasized the context of the literary text rather than the text itself. So what mattered was how perhaps Jane Austen could explain the 19th century to you and tell you a little bit about how women lived at the time. But those kinds of questions didn't attend to the literariness of the text. What do novels do? Why do they matter? What kind of knowing do they offer us? And these are the kinds of questions that tended to get ignored for a long time. There's something wonderful about the literary. It's weird. We want to know what that weirdness mm-hmm. is doing to us, for us, um, and we want to be able to study it itself as a, as a worthy object of study, not just what it tells us about the historical
1: Right. I, it kind of reduces that kind of fiction prose to reporting almost, right? It's just a retelling of a contemporary set of events. Right, as opposed to accomplishing something that has this aesthetic part to it, mm-hmm. that's really difficult to think about and talk about, but certainly worth, you know, kind of theorizing.
0: So when I first um, heard of Anna's work or became uh, um, aware of her work, I thought, "Wow, I wish she'd been one of my teachers in grad school." <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so then, what was the what was the turning point between that way of thinking about making sense out of? you know literary prose and then what's this kind of return to formalism because it's it's it, i mean do you think of it as a as a uh, precursor to all of that or is it a reinvention or a rediscovery mm-hmm. Um.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, there are people who would call something like new formalism um, a set of really disparate, actually, projects and reactions to new historicism and returns to old formalism and and improvisations of new formalism um, starting around uh, the turn of the 21st century. And so, like, one of the big um, texts that first comes out that tries to sort of call this actually a movement or a trend is from 2007. It's in Marjorie Levin's article, What is the New Formalism? And she's sort of taking stock of a bunch of things. And her point there is actually that this is not just a return to the old. So it's a different project than, say, um, new criticism or Russian formalism, Um, but also that it's not a unified project. It's just she was sort of sussing out some things that she thought represented, um, yeah, changes or different sets of questions from this reductive reporting Mm -hmm. uh, that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, And then it really is true, and one of the things we were talking about in our workshop today uh, um, is how much um, this isn't a unified movement, how much there are different reasons why people want to talk about form. So for some people it is this question of literariness and sort of what is actually the difference between Jane Austen's novels and Jane Austen's diaries, or Jane Austen's letters, right? There is a real difference there, and and the kind of knowledge experience they offer us now, hundreds of years later, is actually different. And so do you wanna assimilate those to each other, or do you wanna sort of be able to describe that difference, Mm -hmm. right? What does imagination add to the historical record, right? Mm -hmm. What does form add to the historical record? Um, So there are people who want to ask those questions. But then there are people who want to have a kind of, um, not uh, rejection of new historicism, but sort of synthesis of new historicism with more aesthetic attentiveness, more careful reading. Uh, And those people um, often are interested in making claims about the political ways that Literary form connects to the world, or the ways that um, the political questions that new historicists might sometimes ask—you know—which are often, what, what can we know about context or the past, right? Uh, I wanted to speak with the dead, the founder of new historicism says, right? <laughs> um, I, I, that's the, you know, uh, uh, but, but that there might be some um, kind of ways that if you say know how a poem works, you might also be equipped to know how um, a good way to organize an academic event would be, or a good way to organize a community theater would be, or a good way to um, sort of get around um, the, the problem of like delivering meals to a sick friend. Like what kind of form or pattern or organization do you need for that? And that if you know sonnets, you could also have that portable formal knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So we were reading um, one of the great thinkers of of new formalism who's um, sort of gotten a lot of attention, won a lot of awards, really been helpful. Caroline Levine's book that's just called Forms. She's really in that kind of mode. And that's very different than the literariness kind of mode. Um, And then I think there are probably still other kinds of formalists, and I would sort of count um, myself among them, who are interested in um, things like, um, can you talk about Uh, the form of artworks or the form of literature as um, being Connected to or um, representing in some way or continuous with natural forms like trees, that nobody made a tree. I mean, okay, some right. people believe that somebody <laughs> made a tree, but
1: you yeah, know, some people believe trees are, yeah, spiritual living beings too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's so, true too. Yeah, yeah I'm going to teach the overstory <laughs> later this semester, <laughs> but um,
2: some ego critics believe that. Some, yeah, all kinds of people believe that. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but so is there a kind of ontology? Can you say that there's a being of? Of form, or is form a kind of departure from being? Is mm-hmm. it like a distraction or a mask yeah. for being?
1: A well, that's one, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading through some of your work was the idea, because I come from a media studies background yes. where form has this other you know, it's this other aspect to it that's opposed to content and becomes a way an and often historically ignored way because people learn the conventions of a particular form and then they disregard its influence on the structure of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's become kind of inescapable as we all know now. We're like what's television and what's film, right? right. Because they're all in each other's business and there's right. no real you can't point at something and say, ah, that's clearly well you can point at some things that won't let go of the, the legacy versions but it's very hard with a lot of it to see you know the irishman right it's a right. 3 hour Ugh. movie sort of but Terrible. it's a tv thing sort of yeah and so and so in that sense forms being disturbed by this you know all of the digital possibilities as the technology changes
2: yeah I mean so that's really interesting because it, it seems what you're actually describing as medium right mm-hmm. so um, how is television different from film right and there are ways that that was very very possible to describe in a concrete way in the 1980s or in the 1990s right that um, TV has often got a serial narrative structure plus an episodic narrative structure plus um, you know a, disc- a discrete time that you have to be there it's a point TV, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? and then the film is also a discrete time you have to be there but it's a collective experience you have to go to a specific place you can't work while you're doing it you can't mm-hmm. you know you can't eat while you're doing it and you shouldn't
1: play on your cell phone <laughs> <or> <laughs>
2: <laughs> right yeah. well you didn't have cell phones <laughs> right, right yes. when there um so that um and so then you might say well okay the mil- the medium of film affords collectivity because you have to be in a collective theater space to watch it, but also because you can't make it by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You need the pro filmic event, and you need the lighting, and you need the camera, and you need, you know, so it's a very collaborative art form. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then when we lose the distinction between medium, because uh, between the, those two media, say, because everything is streaming mm-hmm. and is infinitely available, um, then uh, it are there still ways that one wants to talk about, say, Um, filming something versus uh, digital video or um, the kind of camera structures that are used in soap operas and sitcoms. Well, Or even
1: something as simple and and it's always interesting to me to talk to people about how they think about the relationship between a prose work that they like a lot and then how it gets represented in media.
2: Oh, totally.
1: It's it's just really interesting because they always have, uh, my favorite I had a, a graduate professor apparently at the beginning of the film version of Name of the Rose, the director uses the term this is a palimpsest of the novel Uh which is a really interesting way to think about the relationship between what he was trying to do and what he was creating and what Echo had originally done in the the book
2: yeah no that stuff is so fascinating and takes us back to Austin actually because for instance Austin is endlessly remediated right there's so many adaptations and so many versions and you can sort of think about well why does she lend herself to that right it's not just because people love the story or something it actually is in her form too Uh right that she has these incredible layerings in all of her novels of people watching each other watch other people and people thinking about each other think about other people. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of multidimensional relations uh, where you're reflecting and that translates very well visually to cinema where you can have kind of multiple framings and you can have the camera looking at a person looking through a doorway looking Mm -hmm. at another person or you know you can have this kind of spatialization or different rendering Mm -hmm. right of this problem of partial knowledge and situated knowledge and who knows what about whom and how much time when we're thinking are we thinking about what other people are thinking about Mm -hmm. right Um, and so those are really great questions that um, are in her form but then can find a different formal expression
1: right so so in this I'm just kind of curious because I'm uh, some of this is new to me and I'm kind of curious what happens to the experience that any individual reader who's thinking about these things brings to the text in terms of you know formal attributes so you know if you want to think of that as reader response as one oh, thing yeah. feeding into it or you know categorically how you and I would read things differently because of the differences between the kind of people that we are um, does it is is the idea that you're arguing about form as being a, a reasonably you know, transferable yes. experience from person to person, so it really doesn't matter as much? Yeah, for the I think I would
2: say that there's a certain objectivity of form, mm-hmm. right? That just because you are a man who lives in Oklahoma, who's a little older than me, and you might have different experiences or different feelings or different literacies that you're bringing to reading *Pride and Prejudice*, doesn't mean that you could say it's narrated in the first person. Uh it's not true there's an objective right (laughs) right? sort of so there are I think that there are um, principles of form or there are descriptions of form or there are um, ways that you know actions that forms take even that are reasonably objective and that we would have to agree on and that would also be some basis of why studying art and literature isn't just what do I feel about this thing right yeah. right it's like what does this form do you know so we there are I was just teaching um, uh, Susan Choi's new novel um, uh, trust exercise which won the National Book Award mm-hmm. uh, this this November so you know if, if she's a really accomplished novelist she's had uh, Penn Falk Prize, Guggenheim you know she's great she this is her fifth novel and um, It's a it's a book that is um, constantly described as a Me Too novel um, because a lot of it has to do with um, teachers taking sexual advantage of high school students and with um, sort of the problems of consent and of sex as a disturbance in our relationships. And um, but it's it is told in a tripartite structure right and there are different voices in the three parts and there are different um characters who are focalized or who are the protagonists even of the three parts and there's a meta reflexive quality where one of the parts is sort of um making some judgments about one of the other parts and about what kind of genre it is and um, she needs that accretion of different kinds of narratives she needs that form, right? It's not just one novel about a high school or something, because that does work to say a conceptual point about Me Too, which is like, we don't necessarily get the truth of what happens in between people sexually, but when there is an accumulation of different kinds of narratives that show that it's pretty widespread that women experience constant sexual harassment, mm-hmm. say, that is its own truth of some kind, even if it's hard to get the truth of what happened between two people behind Closed doors, mm-hmm. right? So the form of this um, three discrete narratives and their kind of interrelation and they're also kind of undermining each other is doing conceptual work for that book, mm-hmm. right?
1: Hmm. That's right. What we were just describing, because of the Me Too context, reminded me I was listening to an interview on the radio, and I'm not going to remember her name, but there was a woman from Oklahoma who's gone to New York who's developed this art project around the constant harassment that women experience. I, I think the I think the project she's working on is called something like "Don't Ask Me to Smile." Oh yeah. I, and apparently, it's quite well known. And and I didn't know that she was from Oklahoma, which is the thing that's kind of really interesting. But but what was really disturbing was she was talking about how. Universally the experience is and how it's the same age when they begin mm-hmm. to experience these things and then it's just constant for a while. Mm-hmm. So I know it's a little bit of a, a digression. But no,
2: no, but like how do you capture that universality, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. a sociologist is going to want you to do it numerically, right? Right? Um, <laughs> they're going to want you to say, you know, prove that I can count that this is widespread, right? But say maybe an artist is going to want to do it with, um, you know, repetition, mm-hmm. right? Which is different than iteration or right.
1: counting, right? Yeah. So uh, well, so you said counting, so now we have to talk about the math stuff. Oh, yeah. So, so now here, so my simple, like, I'm kind of like going to explain this to somebody on the elevator thing would be <laughs> yeah, so, um, so she wants to look at the formal aspects of prose and then use math, and through that, she is going to create a, a representative objective forms to analyze 19th century novels. How's that?
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> what, what did I get the most wrong out of all that?
2: Um, I'm not trying to use the math to analyze the novels. I'm trying to use the interesting um, uh, repetition across or kind of coincidence of or affinity of the math and the novels Mm -hmm. to say something else. Right. So here's what I'm trying to say. Math weirdly and this was how I first started there's all this weird mathematical imagery in a bunch of 19th century novels like what is that doing there why is math a useful metaphor for them what do Mm -hmm. they care about it so I started reading a few like intellectual histories of math I dug into the context and I learned what I didn't know before I was trying to figure what what this was doing in these novels that there's a major major revolution in mathematics in the 19th century um, that it is the disproving of Euclid's fifth theorem And it is the unsettling of Euclidean geometry then, and that that geometry had been the basis of the Victorian pedagogical system, the Victorian educational curriculum, and what people thought of as a proof in philosophy or in logic, and um, what people thought math was, which was a description of the world, right? And this unsettling of that notion of what truth is and what math is and what knowledge is was more upending for people than the Darwinian revolution was. That's mm-hmm. what the, uh, historians, intellectual historians say. So what is the nature of that revolution? It's to take, um, The idea that when human beings are making mathematical representations, they're not describing the world. They're projecting a possible world. Mm -hmm. They are projecting possible relations, and they're trying to make sure that their projections are internally coherent or that they work together as a consistent form. So they
1: don't think that what they're doing is, it's not the question of an accurate description, but a way of a, a way of describing it that becomes useful kind of looking back at yourself as a perceiver of that is that
2: well yeah i mean it's it's so it's not that the the force of what you know through mathematics is then not accurate description of what's already here but integral projection of what might be possible mm-hmm. so it's imaginative and it's wild it's speculative and it's not just already existing it's something more than that mm-hmm. so that um, uh, event in mathematical formula and then in, in mathematical um, discovery and mathematical trajectories so non-euclidean geometry set theory symbolic logic these all have to do with taking the formula and autonomizing it from the context, or autonomizing it from experience, autonomizing it from ordinary phenomena, right? And but making it its own coherent writing, Mm -hmm. its own coherent symbolic system, its own coherent representation. And that is to me then a really powerful kind of analog for what does fiction do? Mm -hmm. It makes a world. It doesn't just describe the world we already have here. Mm It's concerned to have an integral form that is coherent within itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about possible relationships, and it can teach us that we don't have to live this way.
1: Mm-hmm. The idea that when you were using actual representational numbers, you could say, like, two or three of something, right? Right. And, and that was a way of making an association between that. But once you got into algebraic formulations where you've got Xs and Ys and things like that, that is not a thing you can really apply to the world, right? It's its mm-hmm. own... Internal systems. So you're suggesting that prose is that, right? It's that representation that has that internal consistency.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, um, go ahead, yeah.
0: But these formulations, these um, works, this work that isn't about representation, nonetheless, can have effects in the real.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That um, it can ins- it can give us new knowledge. It can, um, br- you know, dramatize for us that there are new possibles and new possibilities. It can inspire us to um, sort of denaturalize or estrange um, ourselves from what's already the given world, right? It can think that there has to be other things than just experience or there have to be other things than what's already shown up. Mm-hmm.
1: Putting it again in the context of some of the, the other ways that people have thought about that, what does that... Do with the relationship between, like language and things, right? The whole semiotic problem of mm-hmm. that these are all signs, and then there's of course a, a bunch of theoretical work that would argue that once the signs are there, you're you're no longer connected to the things. It's gotten in the way. Right. right.
2: There is work that would argue that um, there's also, I think, work that would argue that that liberates you from the things.
1: Oh ah, Okay. Um,
2: and there's a really interesting book that is. Um, Trying to take stock of how some of these developments in mathematical formalism precede uh, structural linguistics mm-hmm. um, uh, by Andrea, Andrea Henderson, and the the same kind of thing where the concern is that words acquire their meaning not because they correlate to the thing or describe the thing or intrinsically evoke the thing but because they have a place within a system and there's an interrelation of signifiers and um, when words are liberated from things then we have the domain of play of Mm -hmm. poetry, of imagination, and we have the possibility that we could use words to construct different kinds of relationships and different kinds of social systems Mm -hmm. and different kinds of meanings than have already been, you know, sort of contrived in human history. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, So I don't think of that as a loss.
1: Uh And it
2: also points up that even ordinary language... We're involved in we have social conditions that enable us to think that you mean the same thing as I mean when you say table
1: mm-hmm. right.
2: It's not that the word is actually doing the thing you're right
1: yeah thing. yeah it's it's kind of like a step away so so then when you bring this whole approach to the prose that you're looking at, um, I would this I, I, I would imagine that you would argue that you could do this with any Form that's this is a pretty, but but I mean the I, I'm not trying to discount the historical connection that you're making, which I think is really interesting. The idea that the repercussions of a particular intellectual innovation are resonating through the art of the time, mm-hmm. um, but that the that this the the approach that what you gain from this formalist approach would apply to 21st century literature, 14th century literature. Um, I mean the conditions would change, but but instrumentally you could use it to with the with because you're constructing the idea of what fiction is kind mm-hmm. of in, in the same way right
2: well okay that's a little trickier so i would definitely say forward in time okay. right um and that i am again talking very specifically about novels and i do i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure that i would uh extend this to the essay or right. to prose on fiction um uh I there are lots of literary critics and literary historians who are interested in the problem of fictionality and where does it come from. Mm-hmm. But there, and so there are people who say, well, fiction isn't really a category in the medieval period, you know, or it's not a category with the same kind of discreteness that we might think it has now because th- um, there's such spiritual language and facts are different there and the fiction has to be sort of invented. Mm-hmm. Um, and Catherine Gallagher has whole books on the rise of fictionality or things like that, right? Um, and a lot of um, The work on the history of the novel is uh, tacitly and then sometimes explicitly history of fiction, that there is a very particular um, world historical moment in which novels emerge, and that is also um, one in which it is possible to um, enchant daily life and invent the possibility of thinking of the maideness of daily life because there has been the destabilization of the social order of monarchy and feudalism. Mm -hmm. There have been democratic revolutions and there is the mercantilist revolution, the financial revolution. Yeah, on
1: top of God not running everything anymore. Right, right also, yeah, sorry, I forgot that one. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. just that little thing. Just that
2: little thing. So I am interested in the historical specificity Mm -hmm. of the novel and I – and uh, the – form the prose form that is a novel I think is doing the things that I'm interested in and I'm not sure that I would say that pre-novelistic texts mm-hmm. are doing that
1: so something like and again I mean if I'm if I'm going in a down a blind alley say stop that but I'm um, thinking about just storytelling right in previous forms, folk tales mm-hmm. that kind of knowledge that's shared in cultures that mm-hmm. they that they accept being essentially that culture's version of you know, existing inside of a fictional space and sharing it together. Would that, I I know it's not the novel, but is that, does the way that you're talking about, the way that language, spoken or written, uh, changes the relationship we have to the real world that we live in into this other kind of imagined space? Would that apply there as well?
2: I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you could ask, a, a, again, a medievalist, and they might have a different account of it. But mm-hmm. um, I think that um, it's really important that the kind of ps- originary theories of the novel um, put a lot of emphasis on um, modernity as a kind of break with what came before, right? And the novel is the form that is there compensating for that break in lots of ways. So, like, Lukács has this kind of account of um, the classical world as having a certain continuity and imminence of meaning and of wholeness. And so the storytelling, um, the imparting of wisdom, the indistinction of um, what's epic poetry and what is political history and what is uh, recipes and, like, Mm -hmm. the way that those are all sort of delivered in the same medium of Mm -hmm. oral uh, rhymed, structured, you know, Uh, epic and poetry um for instance um that that indistinction gets broken it gets Mm -hmm. lost right um and so that the kind of specificity of um imaginative projective worldliness so not um not uh poetic lyric and you know and not sort of intrinsically beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) objects but um that 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 is very unique and different and historically located mm-hmm. um, in the novel. So, I don't know that I would think that um, there's the same. When what Lukács says is that th- the form becomes conspicuous because it's post imminentist right? Mm-hmm. The, the, so you see that the f- the, um, the author is involved in giving shape to the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that I don't know that you. see that in the same way that the mediated quality of it comes out in the same way in these more um capacious omnivorous um multifunctional kinds of narrative Mm -hmm. modalities uh in the medieval period but i'm really not a good medievalist oh that's okay neither am i Uh
1: but so so the break that you're talking about historically but then moving forward has this consistent pattern that would that is where we where we're still headed yeah.
2: Right. I mean, I guess there would be lots to say about whether you think we're still in an age of novels. You know, right. to go back to your thing of the loss of the difference between TV and mm-hmm. um, and film um, is who who's reading novels, who's writing novels, and why. Yeah. Um, you know, there is really interesting work being done by like Mark McGurl, for instance, on um, the incredible abundance of um, user generated fiction, right? Yes. And self publishing and self platforming, and I think in um, in Japan and Korea and in China there are these just stupendous numbers of people writing novels for consumption on the iPhone, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, um, and it's sort of like, in what sense are these uh, novels in the 19th century way or the 20th century way if very, very few people read them and they were produced for no money, but uh-huh. they, you know, but they're and there's just millions and millions of them, right? Um, so, so there's sort of that problem. I think that literary fiction is pretty much in a residual phase <laughs> mm-hmm. right now i that's
1: like how do you mean residual
2: like uh that if it's being produced as conspicuously literary it's also self-consciously belated over mm-hmm. um done abandoned uh, okay. uh you know the way that in in the irishman it's really a film about the impossibility of making that kind of film. right? Yes. <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of literary, not a lot, but I think that one trend in literary fiction today is being a novel about the impossibility mm-hmm. of writing a novel anymore. Um, because people don't have the capacity for long prose attention. Right? Yeah. Uh, we've had algorithmicized consciousness. We've had highly visualized consciousness. Um, and, um, and everything is short. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because uh, there's this, um, you know, post-ironic sincerity and um, this kind of uh, desire, well, Alain Badu calls it passion for the real but this desire to sort of like um, not be in the universe of Mm fiction and then I think post Trump and in the fake news domain and stuff there's some like well what is what is the realness that we might get Mm -hmm. to and so there's a lot of um, things that you might call novels but that are actually presenting themselves as not novels. Mm-hmm. Not fictional. Canalsgard uh, says um, that it makes him nauseous, the idea of writing fiction. <laughs> Sheila Hetty says Uh-oh. the idea of making a character up and putting them through the paces, I just want to puke. Like they, It's this revulsion that the autofiction yeah. uh, writers just write d- say. I
1: was thinking even in the other direction of, of these um, these universes that get created and then you have multiple types this is kind of a franchise right oh, yeah. the franchise idea where the whole idea is that you're able to move among media and there's you know there's written versions there's film versions television versions there's toys there's all of these things they all exist in the same constructed creative universe mm-hmm. and they all have to do with each other the, all the transmedia versions right. that exist around a particular storyline
2: for sure and yeah. so then um, can you you um, what does it mean to try to analyze those or think Mm -hmm. critically about those, right? So do you have to think, well, when your kid has toys from, you know, The Invincibles or whatever, that's probably not even a real thing. But like, <laughs> the, the No, the, that's <laughs> a real thing. A real <laughs> thing. <Okay. laughs> when your kid has toys, what does the form of the toy from the target aisle, like, um, impart to them uh, and how does it relate to that meaning universe mm-hmm. as opposed to when they watch the movie as opposed to, like, what if then you get the movie made back into a book that's like a kid's book right. that it has a simplified narrative or what, you know. Yeah. Or, um, so how do we, it, you know, are these things, mm-hmm. do they make themselves Available to critical uh, in scrutiny, or right?
1: Not. And well, and also raises the problem of authorship, right? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it's corporate intellectual property. It's right. not, you know, not a particular, you know, not 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 an art object that an artist has produced, right?
2: Right. Although that's a funny question, right? Because um, the, in the English tradition anyway, um, the first, um, you know, authors were all kind of state property, right? Or they had, True, uh, yes. you know, patrons. Uh-huh. And then you get like, you know, the first people to sell their body of work on an open marketplace and earn right. money that way, right? Like yeah. Alphabene. And then, um, then you... Still have this uh, question of the brand of the author <laughs> right, right. Um, and their own intellectual property and IP laws, you know, come with a novel, right? Mm-hmm. With the rapidly circulating, cheaply yeah. printed technology, right? So um,
1: that would be a really interesting way to think about copyright history too. Oh, to yeah. To think about where, because that's something I've always found kind of fascinating. Historically, there was a long period where you would never think that a song or a story belonged to someone, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It was common property, and then mm-hmm. it it eventually becomes something that somebody wants to say this is good i should get paid for it and not only that if i get paid for it i'll do more of it and that becomes justification for a whole way of thinking about the creative process absolutely yeah
2: yeah. Yeah, and um so there's paul st amore's first book is actually about copyright law and the Uh but um there are lots of yeah literary historical accounts of sort of the co-emergence of this form of property that mm-hmm. is circulable yeah. and mass-producible and mass-consumable and, mass mm-hmm. um, and, and intellectual property law and how it sort of, um, yeah, grows out of a kind of um, quotidian um, character of the artwork, and you know, that novels are. Mm-hmm. And they're for the masses and they're about everyday life. and right. um And the alienable character of the right. artwork because, uh, you know, people uh, republished without permission Dickens' novels abroad and stuff like that.
1: hmm You know, the idea that there was that one uh, Banksy artwork that was at an auction, and as soon as the auction closed, it shredded itself. Oh, yeah. Which, to me, that's sort of like something you need to sit and think about for a couple of hours to say, so what was that, Mm -hmm. you know? um, The the idea of, like, how does it exist as an art object? My favorite thing was that if you look around online, you can find a... um, you can get a version of it so you can drop a picture into it. Uh-huh. And then when you play it, it shreds the it shreds. picture that oh, you that's put. that's awesome. So, so it's like a little meme yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well,
0: yeah,
2: but see, the meme then is isolating what the artwork was. The artwork mm-hmm. was not the painting that was right. sold, right? The artwork is the act of destroying a thing that somebody has paid money.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. And, the, and the moment of that, like, uh, that collision between exactly. the possibility of the artwork and the fact that it's become so thoroughly commodified that destroying it is the most logical, rational response to what's uh-huh. happened. Yeah. For sure. yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So yeah. all right, so so where do you think your work is taking you next? Where's, where is mm-hmm. where do you see these ideas going?
2: Well, I am writing a series of things about the dominance of the literary fiction marketplace by the first person and about um, the kind of loss of impersonality as a feature of the literary um, and about the subjectivism of literary and media culture and the sort of iPhone and Instagram and selfie of everything and how that kind of logic of self-expression and own voice and so on is kind of dominating uh, the visual and the literary fields and about um, contrasting that with objectivity as a Mm -hmm. faculty of the literary. Um, And uh, I'm trying to take impersonality and objectivity as real strengths of what literary representation and other kinds of visual representation could offer us to um, remediate the predicament of hyper subjective, hyper privatized, hyper Imminentist uh, representation that isn't up to the task, and in co- hyper privatized culture that isn't up to the task of reckoning with uh, the ecocide and human extinction, mm-hmm. which is what I think of when you say media and end times. <laughs> yes or at the end of the world. Yeah, yeah,
1: meeting the end of the world. Yeah, it's been... I Yeah, w- I, we've always thought of it as more like a threat, that uh, you know, the condition of threat that we exist under yeah. that, you know, it's, and it's sort of like every morning is a victory over the potential of being exterminated yeah. kind of a thing. But,
2: um, um, you know, people are already losing that victory, yeah. <laughs> right? And, you know, there are two billion people worldwide who will be displaced within the next 20 years because mm-hmm. they will live in climates that are uninhabitably yeah. hot or underwater or both. Yeah. So I've been writing about climate fictions and... And I've been writing about first-person fictions, and I've been um, trying to th- think about um, a kind of uh, defense of literary abstraction, literary objectivity, literary impersonality, and um, framing the kind of end of um, of those things in the private regime. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, let me. There's there's a question I have taken to asking the people who come on here so in ask, and this is this really doesn't this doesn't follow directly from what we've been talking about but I'm always curious how people decide that they're going to negotiate following what's going on in the world so in journalism circles you ask people how do you read in you know what's the when you get up in the morning what's the first thing you look at and then how do you feel like you've you've gotten reconnected what's your what's your tendency what do you do
2: this is a really hard question it's good that you ask it I still get the New York Times delivered to my house, (laughs) even though those
1: jerks make me
2: furious. (laughs) (laughs) I also subscribe to the Washington Post. Uh Now, wait a minute. Let me just so our
1: audience understands. You're talking about a piece of paper that has words printed on it that you hold in your hands. And and then you get little black smudges and you're like, I love this. Yeah. Uh Um,
2: I mean, it's it's of course it starts to feel like uh, out dated the minute I open it up you know because there have already been other stories published and that kind of um freneticism of the stories and the instantaneity of the stories I do think we have to worry about so Mm -hmm. there's the length and the context and then there's the sort of rapidity or the pace and like sometimes it takes journalists a little bit of of time to figure out what's happening actually happening so um but I also really strongly believe in highly curated academic and intellectual Twitter and um I think that uh Thank you. the cat if you don't follow random jerks and celebrities and stuff, but and politicians, but if you actually follow journalists, credentialed journalists, mm-hmm. and you actually follow intellectuals and academics and mm-hmm. authors, um, that you can get a lot of, of um, links to important publications and important articles. So I read things in The Intercept that way. I never go to The Intercept's website, mm-hmm. but I read them when they come through my feed. I read things in Mother Jones, I, I read things in The Nation, I read things in The Atlantic. Teen Vogue is an incredible news source. It uh-huh. The most incredible news source. I'm 100% serious.
1: <laughs> no, I believe wow. you. I have a student who's working Teen, for did Tiger you say Beat. Teen Vogue? Yeah, I did. Say oh, yeah, yeah. Teen Vogue, no, so. Teen Vogue is they're kind of known for breaking barriers in terms of gender representation. Oh yeah, well there it it's a, a
2: huge black feminist editorial yeah. board, and they do tremendous investigative mm-hmm. work. I also still get Vanity Fair magazine mm-hmm. in the in the mail. I believe in long form investigative journalism, and they're one of the last places that really does mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's often about misbehaving aristocrats, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, like if you like, and, and I I really do like The Atlantic a lot of the time mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I, I think long form things are important. Yeah, yeah. It's such a hard question,
1: though. Yeah, it's, I, I, th- I think it's always interesting to try to figure out. When you're mentioning Twitter, you know, I was thinking, because I always, again, going back to my media notion of formalization, how do people take how Twitter works and make it do things Twitter's not designed to do? So you get these long explanations that are these threaded right. uh, arguments that right. people are making. And it's kind of fantastic to see how the form. Can still be used to do that if you, you know, kind if of mess know. with it. Yeah,
2: yeah, right. So threading is one example. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, I mean, Black Twitter is its own very storied, um, intellectual, artistic, yeah. creative, political, energetic space that takes a lot of its authority from the exclusion of Black voices from traditional media and institutional outlets. So there, that's the using of um, Twitter's sort of everymanness and mm-hmm. freeness. You know, I mean, obviously it's not free because they're algorithmizing us, but like, you right. know, but the 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 ostensible freeness of it. And And sort of using that to redistribute the power structures or contravene the kind of structures of information and official voices and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So I think that's there. Um, I also a thing that's really important to me is I don't tweet as a person or myself. I tweet on behalf of a scholarly collective. I don't use my name. I don't Mm -hmm. use the first person. I don't do my like here's what I ate for breakfast. (laughs) Like, you know, I that I have a set of sort of rules for our account, which is like. Um, We tweet quotes from interesting literature and interesting theory and Mm -hmm. interesting philosophy. We tweet um, essays published by other academics in academic journals, but also in the New Republic or N plus one or the LA Review of Books. You know, um, uh, open access or easy to access um, uh, public facing inquiry that there's scholarly value added to. Mm -hmm. Um, We tweet things about academic politics or links to news stories about, say, the labor actions of the University of California this week. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is not for my personal edification or my personal brand and i try not to have it be evident you know that there's a single person there and in fact mm-hmm. there aren't there are other of the members of the collective you right. know to tweet for us so that's a thing where i'm trying to not think about it as like this is just meanness this is just mm-hmm. self-expression or this is just my domain right i'm trying to use the medium to it, it's anonymity mm-hmm. you know for a reason yeah
1: i think anonymity is one of the great question marks because it's simultaneously been the it, it's been incredibly corrosive yeah. and at the same time incredibly liberatory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, and so I think it ends up sort of like with notions of things like uh, propaganda and you know, mm-hmm. things that are often positioned as really simple to understand communication practices. And when you kind of crack them open a little bit, they're really complicated they and, really and they really present interesting mm-hmm. challenges for thinking about how the media world is evolving yeah so yeah Yeah. well thank you very much Daniela. thank you for coming in and anna thank you for coming in it's been great to talk to you about this and you've been listening to media and the end of the world